Trevor Alpert and the team of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his regular appearance, his regular Monday appearance, is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. Uh, in fact, in the conversation we've recorded, in which you, the listener, are about to hear, uh, Dave Cameron, my editor, gave me some editorial advice, or at least uh, advice on how I might receive more traffic from the posts that I write at the site. That advice goes as follows. Put Yafiel Puig's name in the headline. Uh, and in fact, what has happened is I have put uh, uh, Yaza Puig's name in the title. Uh, and we do, in fact, in what follows, we do discuss Yaziel Puig. We also discuss, uh, well, not just uh, not just some things relative to baseball, uh, but uh, all things relevant to baseball. Because as uh, as you know, if you've ever listened to uh, Dave Cameron's appearances on Fangraphs, you know that uh, Dave Cameron... Uh, is accustomed to, of course, analyze all baseball, and that is what happens. Let us not delay uh, in listening to Dave Cameron analyze all baseball. It is right now. It's a uh, Fangraphs audio features Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Returned? <laughs> Returned. There you go. I knew that it was a, a word that started with read, and then you come back to a place, and I could not think of what it was. Yeah, Dave Cameron, professional writer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the word returned escaped me. Yeah, returned. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, very good. Uh, any, any guess, Cameron, as to what I'm uh, doing now? Especially, I'm using this banter to... Uh, my guess would be you're watching a uh, video of some... No name prospect who throws 83 while checking the levels. While checking the levels, yeah. Actually, I was uh, I was writing a brief piece for Knockgraphs uh, called on uh, very brief called on Team Allegiance. I was just uh, investigating it briefly to figure out why people cheer can for I, teams. Can I make a suggestion on how you can make this better? Yeah. Put Yafiel Puig's name in the headline. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I don't I don't care if he's in the post or not. Just put his name in the headline. Traffic will go nuts. I was I was curious as to. Um, uh, well, uh, Dane, so Dane Perry at one point mentioned that we should have at Knockrafts we should have an SEO week, yeah, uh, in which we try and investigate all the ways. Uh, now, of course, you could see what direction Dane would go, and it would uh, yeah. <laughs> it would be difficult for the site. But if we put Pro- certain propane, con- maybe. It, yeah, we would put certain constraints on it, and uh, it might be amusing uh, to have an yeah. S- SEO week. I, I think uh, it would actually be a big success, according to our boss. Maybe not according to our readers. Right. Well, that is. Uh, uh, this is probably – I don't know how interesting this is, but I assume that there is some strategy. I mean, a site like Fangraphs faces it. A site, any site faces it, right? Where um, obviously to exist, you need – to exist, you need to produce content. Yeah. If you do not produce content, then it's not really a site anymore. Um, and you want to be able to produce content in such a way that um, it appeals to readers and yeah. uh, brings them to the site, and they read – they say, oh, this is um, – or they say this appeals to me. Uh, this is something I want to read, and then therefore you uh, you, you get money that way. You produce yeah. revenue, um, and so you can pay your employees, etc. But you also yeah. don't want to crush. Uh, in a certain way, you want it, the content to be of a certain quality, so that um, I don't know. So that you because reputation, I suppose, has something to do with it too. Right. I mean, to me, I think that the balance is that you want to give people what they want, even if it's not what they know what they want. So I think like people in their 
they generally have an idea of the kind of stories they want to read, but they don't always necessarily know the topic or kind of the, the content that they want to read. Right. So, you know, like maybe the, the average Vanguard reader woke up today thinking, like, I want to read about Yasiel Puig. Uh, we could have just given them a post of, like, you know, 15 Yasiel Puig gifts, and maybe they would have been happy. But if we did that every single day and all we did was just, like, create moving images of guys hitting home runs, it would get repetitive and boring and uh, there would be significant diminishing returns. I think the key is to figure out what the idea or the story that they kind of will enjoy reading about, but mm-hmm. changing up the, the specifics of the stories so that are not all the same. Right. Yeah, in fact, I found myself, uh, because at first, uh, it was interesting at first, right, when Yaziel Puig uh, hit his first home run, because, uh, of course, at Nowcrafts, uh, we, we've done a bit of, yeah. uh, quite a bit of coverage of uh, his bat-flipping exploits. Yeah. And so, of course, you know, there was this great question. Where, uh, when Yaziel Puig hit his first home run, uh, would he, you know, would he flip his bat in a dramatic way? And uh, turns out, no. Turns out he didn't. Yeah. He has a natural yeah. sort of recoil to his right. swing that yeah. there's more flourish than, than you'd expect uh, from, you know, than, than you get from other players. But it was not, it, you know, it was not dramatic. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Adam Dunn, where he finishes with, like, that backhand, uh, you know, the bats behind him, mm-hmm. and it almost looks like he's admiring every home run he hits just because of how his swing is. And then, like, because Adam Dunn's eight feet tall, when he drops the bat, it looks like a bat flip, but really he's just letting go. Letting go, right. And uh, there are myriad opinions about the bat flip. I tend not, I think there's definitely time and a place for it. I support it. I think that, you know, but then at the same time, you're, there are a lot of times you're not hitting home runs. So, you know, I mean, we, if, if you're going to flip a bat – um, then recognize that you're probably going to, you know, you're going to strike out too. I mean, the, you know, even the best player strikes out 5% of the time. So, uh, Well, actually, I think only the terrible players strike out 5% of the time, right? Like, that's Juan Pierre, and he's terrible. Well, it's also Marco Scudero. Okay, mm-hmm. but he's not the best player. No, he's not the best player. No, right. Even the best... Right. Even the best... only the best players strike out 5% of the time. Okay, that's true. Actually... Uh, maybe someone's done this post. Optimal strikeout rate. If there is an yeah, optimal I, strikeout this rate. Is, this is actually a thing I have been thinking about lately. Oh. Yeah. But so do you wish to divulge any any of your thoughts on the well, matter? <laughs> so I think like there's there's obviously a trade off between strikeouts and power, right? Like everyone knows this. If you strike out more, the way to offset the extra strikeouts is to hit more home runs. Uh, so I think for every individual player the, the optimal strikeout rate is different based on your own skills. Like, Marco Scudero's optimal strikeout rate is like 7%, and Adam Dunn's is probably like 30%. Uh, but I think that there's probably a way, and I haven't done this yet, and, you know, maybe some aspiring reader will be inspired, uh, aspiring and inspiring, I don't know, a reader will maybe uh, <laughs> take it upon themselves to do this research. But I think, like, it would be interesting to find if we could come up with the optimal strikeout rate for a hitter based on everything except for his strikeout rate. So if you know his ground ball rate, uh, maybe his speed, um, you know, his home run to fly ball rate, whatever all these other indicators are, you would say this is the amount that I think this player should try and make contact, essentially, or this is the trade-off that he should be willing to make and, and come up with some kind of uh, ideal um, line at which, you know, this is the most predictive that hitter can be based on his other skills. Right, okay, yeah. Um, I mean, there are certainly players who have uh, great power and um, certainly above above average contact abilities. Uh, Prince Fielder has yeah, become that player. Yeah, there's a few, and they're awesome. They tend to be pretty awesome, right? 
Yeah, right. If you have these two skills, unless you're just, you know, a total hack who's terrible defensively, you're probably one of the best players in the game. Can you think of a player, uh, Vladi Guerrero, Guerrero comes to mind, but a player who had excellent power and excellent contact ability um, and just didn't, uh, just swung at everything? Or swung at, uh, most, things, swung at most things? Yeah, so got, like an excellent contact hitter with power who also just chased everything. Maybe, maybe not chased, but just never walked really. Yeah, maybe Nomar Garciaparra comes to mind. Like okay. he was kind of in that mold. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe, I, I don't know if you think of him as like the most powerful guy. Adrian Beltre, I think, is in that mold as well. Ivan Rodriguez, a little bit. Juan Gonzalez. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot, a lot of Texas Rangers. It seems like this seems to be a skill set that has worked well in that ballpark. Could be organizational. Could be, but I mean, Juan Gonzalez and Juan Rodriguez, Adrian Beltre, that's like a what, 15 year span. I mean, that's, you know, I, I don't think the people who were in charge in Texas in the late 90s are still of it, making any influence. Right. Okay. Hey, speaking of organizational, I, I hadn't planned to discuss this either, but uh, we discussed last week, um, on last week's podcast, I think we discussed uh, the, the Detroit Tigers, the Detroit Tigers, and, yeah. uh, and uh, in particular, how there might be, there might be cause to think, um, there might be cause to think that there's something organizationally um, yeah. that it may, you know, throughout all the levels, uh, maybe it, had, it pertains specifically to pitching coach Jeff Jones. There's an organizational um, emphasis on strikeouts. Yeah. Um, this has not changed at the major league level, certainly, over the last week. Uh, Rick Porcello continues to be pretty great. Uh, unfortunately, Anibal Sanchez missed his last start. But uh, who fills in for Anibal Sanchez is uh, Jose Alvarez. Jose Alvarez originally signed um, as an international free agent in 2005, uh, traded to the Marlins, and then he became a minor league free agent. He's 24 years old, makes his debut. Well, first of all, he should be 24 years old and has is, is currently having one of the best seasons at, at AAA this year in the international right. league. First time at the level and um, promoted, starts in Sanchez's place yesterday and proceeds to uh, what strike out seven, walk one. I mean, it's the Detroit Tigers. What do we expect in the left? Right, but it, it, uh, have we seen that something like that before? Do you think where um, where it just seems like uh, whatever sort of pitcher, like a, a, an organization, can just do anything it wants? Like it just it could essentially sign anyone and turn them into someone who's serviceable. I mean, this was kind of the uh, running joke with the Padres bullpen a few years ago, right? Like when Kevin Towers was there, it was like you know. Every year they would come up with three guys you'd never heard of who ran 35% strikeout rates out of their bullpen, and they just had, like, this rotating uh, cast of crew that was amazing and, and, you know, got everybody out. And part of that was obviously Petco Park. Uh, but, you know, like Luke Gregerson, and the main guys that no one had, you know, put any emphasis on as prospects, and they would turn them into monster, uh, you know, dominating late-inning relievers. Uh, and I remember it might have been Grant Brisby. I, th- I think it was Grant Brisby wrote this fairly humorous post when someone was trying to discuss how Kevin Towers uh, keeps finding all these like undervalued relievers, and uh, Brisby was like, you know, here's trade negotiations between Kevin Towers and some other GM, and he was like, give me all of your low-walk, high-strikeout power arms, and the, uh, the other GM would be like, I don't know how you keep finding all these uh, amazing relievers, and Towers, the whole time, Towers like, I want guys who don't walk anyone and strike everyone out, and yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of what the Tigers are doing right now, is they focused on pitchers who don't walk anyone and strike everybody out. And, uh, you know, this year they've combined that with also not giving up home runs, which is, you know, a pretty neat trick if you can pull it off. 
Right, yeah. And and so Jose Alvarez is the latest. I mean, I guess the Dave Duncan comes to mind too, right, in terms of yeah. uh, you know, teaching or who know teaching fo- fostering the uh, uh, adoption of um, of a sinker by, by uh, yeah. a pitcher who shows up. I think we I mean with with Duncan it's a little different though, right? Because like teaching a pitcher how to throw a sinker ball and get grounders is not something that's so unique and so difficult. I mean it's you know, maybe actually getting them to buy into the philosophy is, is really challenging and you know, maybe Duncan was really good at uh, fostering that attitude of buying into what he was saying. But I mean you know you can take pretty much any pitcher in baseball, get them to throw a two seam fastball low in the zone and their ground ball percentage is going to go up. I think what the Tigers are doing uh, you know, if this is something the Tigers are doing, and, you know, we haven't proven that yet, but if if the Tigers can just take, you know, a decent major league starter and turn him into a strikeout machine, that's harder. Like, it, it's not so easy to just take a pitcher, uh, and, you know, I think they're doing it in different ways. I mean, Doug's just grabbed a curveball, Honorable Sanchez is trying to change it more. It doesn't seem that there's just one thing. They're like, here's your new pitch that will strike everybody out, uh, but they're tweaking the, the pitchers they do have and getting the best possible outcome from them. Uh, by convincing them to never pitch to contact. Right. And uh, so there, I guess, you know, there obviously uh, can be helpful for a pitcher to, to pitch to contact in some cases, I think, yeah. right? Because at least if, if nothing else, now this pitcher is probably throwing strikes. And uh, throwing strikes is mostly going to be better than throwing balls. Um, yeah. But, um, but somehow the Tigers pitchers are good at um, just throwing only strikes and then batters don't hit them in addi- additionally. Right. I mean, I think, like, you know, if we're talking about an organizational philosophy of throwing strikes, you would generally think of, like, the twins of the, you know, late 90s, mid-2000s, where they had Brad Radke and the army of Brad Radke clones who just threw the ball down the middle. Uh, I think what's interesting about the Tigers rotation is that's not really how they built their staff, right? Like, Justin Verlander did not come into the league as a command guy who pounded the strike zone. He, he didn't have great command of a, of a guy in college. He didn't have great command when he first got to major league. Uh, he's still, command is still not his main thing. I mean, he throws enough strikes to be really good, but he's not like a pinpoint ace. Max Scherzer walked everybody in the minors. He was kind of the Trevor Bauer of his day, uh, and they've turned him into a, a better command guy. Still not an elite command guy. Um, Doug Fister is really kind of the only guy in that rotation who was a, you know, strike throwing, pound of his own kind of guy. Uh, and, you know, they figured out how to keep him that way while also adding strikeouts. How does Fister strike people out usually? What does he use? The curveball. I think so. Like when he was in Seattle, he was a, a sinker ball guy with a really good changeup, but the changeup was mostly just a strikeout pitch against lefties. Uh, so he ran the reverse platoon split and was kind of, you know, an, a back end starter, inning reader type because he didn't really have an help pitch against righties. Uh, Detroit has really helped him improve that curve, or you know, whether it's Detroit who helped him more. His curveball has improved a lot while he was in Detroit. You can figure out the causation there, however you want. Uh, his curveball has become a, a real out pitch against both kinds of hitters, and uh, he's taken a huge step forward against right-handers, primarily because of the curveball. And he, but he still has the changeup, though, too? The changeup's still awesome, too. Still and awesome. his fastball's gotten faster. So, you know, add a new pitch, uh, still throw strikes, and throw harder. Good, it's a good, uh, good recipe. Um, yeah. Uh, now, listen, we made a passing reference to uh, Yezel Puig, but uh, you've made more than a passing reference to Puig today at the site um, and uh, sort of, I guess, the idea is to say, well, um, we know we have a week's worth of major league data on Puig, um, yep. and we can that's that's augmenting what we knew about him as a minor league prospect. Uh, and um, he's not he's likely not at this moment the best player in the major leagues. But I think your conclusion, if I'm not mistaken, is that uh, there's reason to believe that some of what he showed us 
uh, is representative of, of his actual skill set. Yeah, I mean, I think the when I set out to write the piece, I just kind of wanted to explore uh, how Fleet was succeeding. And, you know, I think going into it, uh, I knew I was going to talk about his approach and his plate discipline numbers because there was all the talk in spring training about how he, whatever, at 550 or something, but he didn't draw a single walk in all of March. He went like 58 plate appearances without drawing a walk. And, you know, we are known for liking walks. We like people who work counts and uh, get on base, and drawing walks is a really good way to get on base. And so I think any time a talented, toolsy prospect comes up who doesn't walk, there's an instant cynicism among the supermetric community that this guy's going to suck. He's overrated. He's Cordy Patterson. He's Delman Young, whatever. Like, because of all the years that we were told about all these really great, fantastic, toolsy prospects who couldn't control the strike zone and watched so many of them fail, I feel like there's a pushback against this kind of prospect. Uh, and, you know, maybe some cynicism around Puig's first week because, you know, he's swinging at everything and he's showing a really aggressive approach. But I found it interesting in looking at, like, the Texas speakers' uh, spray chart and, and strike zone plot specifically that Puig isn't really hacking away. I mean, he's swinging at strikes and hitting the ball where pitchers are pitching him. He's driving the ball to right field. He's not trying to pull everything. There's not really a lot of evidence that first week Yafiel Puig is this uh, you know, Delman Young, UNESP, Betancourt kind of uh, swinging anything hack. He, right, he does. Uh, and, of course, at, at, um, at Chattanooga in the, in the Southern League, I guess, yeah, AA Southern yeah. League, he yeah. was um, uh, He was also, I mean, he was walking a fair amount there uh, in addition to putting yeah. up um, excellent uh, excellent power on contact. And, and, you know, he wasn't yeah. whiffing a ton. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, the thing that, uh, I think that there, there can be a, a pattern of just assuming that all these prospects are very similar and say, okay, you know, Fleet doesn't walk. He's an athletic, toolsy guy who got to the majors with, you know, a couple hundred minor league plate appearances. He's going to be this raw, you know, Vlad Guerrero type uh, and, you know, kind of putting pigeonholing him as this kind of player when I think, you know, ignore spring training. Spring training stats don't matter. If we actually look at the body of work of Yasiel Puig as a professional, uh, you know, starting in double A and then up to what we've seen in one week in the major leagues, there's not actually that much evidence that he's a hack. I mean, you know, he's aggressive, yes. Uh, does he swing a lot? Sure. But I think there's a, a difference between uh, swinging at strikes, especially strikes from terrible pitchers, which he's faced some pretty terrible pitchers so far, uh, and swinging at pitches over your head. And there's, you know, in one week sample size, obviously it's way too early to say anything definitively, but if we were going to criticize what Puig has done or try and put it in some context, it seems like the criticism that Puig's approach is too aggressive just doesn't hold up to the truth. So um, now, if we look at the Dodgers, we find that um, uh, we sort uh, we sort by WAR. Uh, we find something that I'm sure is uh, of some concern to that organization and also to the fans of same, and that is that um, of the three uh, the top three outfielders for the team, one of them is Carl Crawford, which is excellent. Of course, um, they they gave up quite a bit in the way of resources. Uh, to acquire Crawford last year, along, of course, with Adrian Gonzalez, Josh Beckett. But uh, Crawford's working out quite well for them. Uh, but then the next two outfielders we see, uh, we find our um, Scott Van Slyke, who began yep. the season in the minor leagues and is uh, oldish, I believe, 20, 26 maybe, 25, 26? 26. Yeah, 26, I think. 26. Uh, and Yaziel Puig, who uh, also started uh, the season in the minor leagues. No, it's not It's not bad that they're playing uh, that they're playing well, uh, but the, the problem is that um, – Andre Ethier and, of course, Matt Kemp, uh, both of whom have uh, recorded quite a bit in the way of 
plate appearances. And in fact, uh, one needs to go to the second page of the team's war leaderboard to find uh, Matt Kemp's name. Uh, they have together, uh, they have uh, recorded over 400 plate appearances, and collectively they have a negative. Uh, they have a negative war. Uh, those guys are getting paid quite a bit. Uh, the question is, um, what do the Dodgers do now? Uh, right? I mean, Puig is playing well. Vince Leg is playing pretty well. And, and it looks like he could sustain something. He's probably not not a great player, but decent. Uh, Puig, of course, has, has made it difficult uh, for the team to do anything but to play him. Uh, what's yeah. what's what's now in the immediate future for the Dodgers? Well, I think the most obvious thing is they're going to trade Andre Azier. I mean, they can talk about how he's not on the trade block, and you know they can deny that they tried to shop him all winter. But you know, Andre Azier's days in Los Angeles are numbered. It, it's, a, it's a matter of when they're going to trade him, not if. So Crawford's going to be a staple in left field when he's healthy for a little while, and Scott Van Slyke can be his fill-in and platoon player. And I think those two kind of make a nice little left field tandem. Uh, in center field, you're basically stuck with Matt Kemp, and, you know, there's worse things in the world to be stuck with than Matt Kemp, but, you know, given his contract and his stature in Los Angeles, uh, he, he's not a guy you're going to replace. Uh, you're basically just going to hope he gets healthy uh, and starts performing better. Uh, you know, there's maybe some thought that long-term Kemp would need to move to a corner, uh, but unless Carl Crawford's willing to play center field, which he traditionally hasn't been, uh, it seems like Kemp's going to stay in center field, and, and you know, they're just going to have to hope he turns it around, and I think Cleague you know, the right fielder in Los Angeles until he stops performing, which, you know, might be 15 years. I mean, I think Cleese has been kind of taken over the right field job from eight years at this point. So whenever everyone's healthy and uh, often disabledist, Andre Ethier's a fifth outfielder, <laughs> maybe, for the Dodgers at this point. And, you know, given that he's got $80 million left in his contract, that means they're trading Yeah, and so what is that trade going to look like then? Um, I mean, I, they're – they're in last place in the AL, or the NL West right now, but at the same time, they're expected to compete. I assume they're not going to, and I, and I would also assume that trading Andre Ethier would look like a uh, a white flag uh, situation, or at least at, at first it could be perceived as such, even if it might ultimately benefit the club. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that trading Ethier is a sign they're giving up on the season. It's a sign that he doesn't have a job in LA anymore. I mean, I think we can. Kind of look back, and not that I'm comparing the, the 2013 Dodgers to the 2004 Red Sox, but the Red Sox needed Nomar Garcia Parra in the midst of a pennant race, and then, you know, went on to win the World Series when Garcia Parra was, you know, franchise hero, and, uh, you know, somewhat unthinkable that they would, um, ship him out in the middle of a season when they were trying to contend. Uh, you know, Ethier is not Nomar, the Dodgers are not the Red Sox, but I think they can trade Ethier without it signifying that they're punting the season. Uh, the question is going to be, you know, how much of that set, that contract did they pick up? It's probably at least 40 million, maybe 50 million. I mean, they're gonna, they're gonna eat a large chunk of that contract in order to move him. Uh, it's basically got four and a half years and, you know, a little under $8 million left on the deal. So, uh, I don't think anyone's gonna take more than half and maybe not even half. Uh, and if the Dodgers want something interesting in return, maybe they're picking up, you know, closer to 50 million and all of a sudden you're, you're trading easier at like a four year, $30 million remainder, which I think, you know, even given his first couple months, he probably worked something in that 430, 436 range. Um, but if they want to get value back, if they want to get a piece that can help them or, a, you know, a prospect of some note, maybe they're picking up, you know, 50, 60 million. Yeah, it's... I, it, well, who's going to want him then? A team that could... that is willing to pay... What, what did it come up to? Like 30, 30 or 40 million for him, you said? Yeah, I mean, I think if you, if you go to the Mets, or the Mariners, or one of these teams that, you know, really needs outfield help, and you say, I'm willing to give you Andre Avier on a four-year deal of $36 million. $5 million a year, 
that's a little less than a two-win player on the open market. Uh, one, you don't have to convince him to come sign with you. Um, you know, it, it's a you know a nice buy low opportunity. You know, four thirty-six. I think you probably have some buyers. Uh, you know, maybe you're not going to get great return at that price, but I think someone will take that off your hands. And like, you know, if you go down to four twenty-eight or something, and it's seven million a year, now I think you're probably getting some some actual interest, and you know, maybe you're getting something back in return. Okay, and and you think Ethier is is probably worth that? That's a that's a contract that makes sense to pay. Uh, I mean, I think if either was a free agent, he probably wouldn't get a four-year deal, but he would probably get more than $7 million a year. I mean, I think, you know, when we look at bounce-back guys, you know, a couple of years ago, Rich Harden got $10 million for the prayer that he might be healthy. I mean, you know, teams will spend, uh, you know, close to $10 million a year on lottery tickets, generally on shorter-term deals. But each year was a, you know, league average player or above-average player as recently as last year. It's 200 bad plate appearances. Uh, he's certainly, you know, on the downside of his career, and maybe the, the last year of that deal is not so great. But, you know, Cody Ross just got $9 million a year for three years as a free agent. Four, 36, three years, not absurd. Now, is it not overreacting a little bit? Uh, I mean, I noticed here, for example, that uh, Ethier is both walking more and striking out less than he has, or than he did uh, last season, for example, when uh, when he was quite good. What, what's changed? Well, he's not having any power. I mean, I think that's kind of the thing with Andre Ethier is his power – Coming up with a prospect in Oakland, his power was always a little suspect. Uh, and, you know, he kind of turned into a better player than I think was expected, in part because uh, his power developed. And, he, you know, he was never a 40-home run guy, but a lot of doubles and 20, 25 home runs. Right now, I think if Mesa's hovering around 100, he's got as many home runs as Tweed does in the last week. Uh, I think <laughs> when you have a, you know, a bad defensive outfielder who doesn't hit for power, that's not a great player. Right. So, the, and so that's, a, that's an interesting sort of thing, right, in terms of looking – retroactively as a as a prospect uh, report or a scouting report on a prospect because that's the sort of thing where yeah if Andre Ethier I mean most players who hit 30 home runs that's that's going to provide some value yeah but as a prospect you know if if right now if Ethier was a prospect you'd say whoa well um, we don't know about his defense right yeah. he, you know he's he's a corner guy and then after a corner there's not really much place to go, right? You can become yeah. a first baseman. But the problem is that um, offensively, he's fringy for a corner outfield, and, you know, he'd be better as, like, a center fielder, for example. Right. Uh, so if he loses a little bit of any one of those things, uh, he can become below average pretty quickly. And and I think that's probably what we're seeing then, yeah? Yeah, and I think, you know, realistically, each year's best used in a, as a platoon. I mean, he shouldn't play against left-handers. Like, there's nothing that he does well enough besides hit that justifies him being in the lineup against left-handed pitching, which he doesn't hit very well. So you look at here, you know, even in a best-case scenario, he's a 70%, 75% playing time guy. Um, you know, you're going to play him, you know, five or six days a week, not seven days a week. So that's going to bring down his cost anyway, bring down his value. Uh, and so if you're a platoon guy who's, you know, not a great base runner, not a great defender, you really need to be able to hit right-handers pretty well. And, you know, for a, for a good stretch, he did. And, you know, if he can get back to, you know, even 80% of what he used to be, he can be a, a useful, uh, strong side of a platoon. But when he's not hitting right-handers that well, he's basically useless. All right, let's discuss, uh, before I let you go, um, uh, let's discuss the draft. Of course, last week you said, uh, should we discuss the draft? Or I'm surprised you didn't discuss, you didn't bring up the draft. And then the draft happened. <laughs> yes. Um, but in, yeah. at some point in, in between, you, um, uh, well, I guess you, one thing you wrote about was Mark Appel, of course, uh, yeah. number one overall pick for the Astros. And you were discussing a new sort of leverage. I'd like to just get to that briefly and 
Uh, we can gloss over all three days of the draft in like a minute after that. But um, with regard to Appel, for, for some reason yeah. you say that um, despite the fact that he's 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 a senior, right? So yeah. he can't go back to college. Um, right. Yet he still has some he still has some kind of leverage, and it has to do with the pool system. Yeah, so I think like one of the things that I found interesting, and you know, uh, I think this is probably where I disagree with uh, a decent amount of our readers is on the concept of where leverage comes from. And I've had this discussion with people before, where it seems to me, and this is a gross generalization, I'm sure not everyone listening to this podcast thinks this way, but it seems to me that the popular sentiment about leverage essentially comes from what your alternative is, and this is the only kind of leverage that exists. So uh, if you say, okay, I want to trade a player, I can create leverage by telling Team A that I can trade into Team B, and then I can drive up the bidding. But if there's no Team B, I'm just uh, at the total whim of whatever Team A wants to offer me because I don't have an alternative and there's no there's no other option for me, so I just have to give them whatever they want. Uh, and you see this a lot, I think, when players get designated for assignment, is, you know, some teams, if people are always, oh, you can get that guy for free because if they don't trade for him, uh, you know, they can just find him as a free agent in 10 days. The, the team has lost all their leverage from a DFA a player. Uh, and I think we we see this in some of the response to the, the post that I wrote where people are assuming that the, the uh, Astros have all the leverage here because Appel can't go back to school and, you know, he probably doesn't want to spend a year in indie ball. Uh, he probably doesn't want to go to Japan. Appel's alternatives are not very appealing. And so just from the standpoint of Mark Appel, he doesn't have a lot of leverage, uh, as most college seniors don't, and this is one of the reasons college seniors signed for basically nothing. Uh, you know, as we talked about Matt Carpenter last week, he signed for $1,000 as a senior 13th round pick because he had no other option. He just took what the Cardinals gave him, and it was $1,000, uh, and that was the signing bonus. But I think what maybe gets glossed over is that leverage isn't just uh, your alternatives, but it's what you can do to the other party, right? So it's kind of the nuclear option where you say, it might not be in my own best interest, but I can negotiate from a point of harming you as well. And, uh-huh. uh, it's kind of like the hostage idea, right? So like a guy in a building with hostages who's surrounded by the police has no viable alternative. He can't get out of the building without going to jail. He's not going to, he might not even live through the scenario. His end plans are not positive. He has no real, um, you know, threat of a good outcome for himself. He has the threat of negative outcomes for the other party, and that's what he's negotiating with. And I think in Appel's case, he might not have good options uh, of his own where he can, you know, oh, so I don't find the Astros, I can go do this other thing, I can re-enter the draft next year. These are not good options for him. But he can kind of hold the Astros draft budget hostage and do some harm to their ability to sign other players or at least plan for what it will take to sign other players and how they're going to reallocate all their funds for their total draft pool by simply not negotiating until after the deadline because he doesn't have to sign by July 15th or July 12th, whatever the date is, uh, like everyone else does. So essentially I think what I'm trying to say, and maybe I didn't say it all that well in the post <laughs> given some of the reactions, is that uh, Appel is basically uh, in a position of leverage because he can push the nuclear option and screw the Astros, not because uh, he has good alternatives for himself. And I think both of these things are valid kinds of leverage. Is there, is there more of a gentleman's way to describe it? Because uh, holding hostage, nuclear, these are violent uh, These are violent images. Um, right. They have violent connotations. I, I mean, I, I suppose that we say that there are he can he can force the Astros to think. Now, you, you write in your post that so the, the slot 
for the pick. The 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 pool yeah. the allotted pool value is seven point seven nine million. Yeah. Right. Um, if he can, because the team is allowed to go a certain percent over without a great deal of penalty, he could ask for eight point one eight million, eight point one eight million, without affecting yeah. any of the other signees. Correct. Right. Now, do you think if if you were to put money on one option or not, do you think when Scott Boris sits down, he's asking for eight point one eight million, or do you think he's asking for more than eight point one eight million? I mean, it's Scott Boris, right? So, like, no matter what. Like Scott Boris might have told the Astros before the draft, you know, there's some incentive for Boris to get as much as possible and kind of, uh, especially with the whole situation and how it worked out last year, uh, there's some, a saving face situation here where if, I think if Appel signs for less than what the Pirates uh, reported and offered him, and there's some dispute as to whether it was a real offer or not, but uh, theoretically, the idea is that the Astros uh, offered him $6 million before the draft last year and he turned it down, and that's why they took Carlos Correa. I think Appel has to sign for significantly more than $6 million in order to save face here, uh, for, at least for Boris to save face. For it to be, I lost a year of, of pro ball, I played my free agency for a year, and here's what I have to show for it. Yes, he went number one overall, but if he doesn't get more money, uh, I think that at that point maybe you argue that Boris's tactics failed, and uh, I don't think Boris wants to be seen as a failure. So my guess is they have to come in significantly north of six. Uh, whether that's seven and a half, eight, eight and a half, nine, I'm not sure. And, you know, uh, I'm assuming the Astros have done their diligence here. They probably have a better idea. I'm, I'm sure they have a better idea of what that number is. Uh, but at the same time, I think that there's an interesting game of chicken here, right? It's like if Boris just says, I'm not going to negotiate until after the deadline, you go sign all the rest of your draft picks, and then we're going to figure it out. Say the Astros sign all their other picks for slot or something close to slot, and they spend – you know, basically the pool resources on all of the rest of their picks, and they have, you know, $7.79 million left in the pool, and Mark Appel is August, and he's the only one left to sign. There's no incentive for the Astros. There's no value to the Astros in signing him for less than that. It's not like they can take that million dollars they would save by driving down to 6.79 and give that to someone else. If they don't give it to him, it just disappears. So, like, I think that there's an interesting game where maybe Boris, from his perspective, shouldn't even bother to sit at the negotiating table until after everyone else is signed. Right, but if you sign other people, you know, hmm. well, it's, uh, yeah. What if the Astros sign only Mark Appel and none of their other picks? Yeah, you can't actually do that. And in the new system, if you don't sign any of your other picks, you lose their pool money. So the only way to reallocate pool money is you have to sign guys for less than their slot, but you have to sign them. Oh, so, you have to sign you know, them. You have to sign them, otherwise the money goes away. So if they don't sign any of their other guys, it's not that they have eleven and a half million to get to Appel, they have seven point nine million or seven point eight million to get to Appel. The only way they can get more money to get to Appel is to sign all their other picks for, you know, hundred thousand dollars each, and then they would have a couple extra million to play with. Pretty sure the guys that they drafted in round two to ten aren't gonna aren't gonna go for that play yet. Uh, they're not all gonna get together and be like, Let's get Mark Appel more money. So uh, you know, on one hand, I think that my, my guess is Appel's going to sign, and he's probably going to sign something close to slot. Uh, he's going to get more money than he would have if he would have gone last year. The Astros will get their player. Uh, Boris will save face. This probably won't be, you know, any kind of big deal. I just think the idea of it is interesting and in that, you know, we have a college senior going number one overall, and college seniors traditionally have no leverage, uh, but Appel has leverage because of the new pool rules that other players haven't had before. It's uh, interesting to think of, though, a situation where a team would want to allocate all – it would want to retain 
its entire allocated pool uh, cap essentially. Yeah. And so what they would do is they would they would draft people or people they could sign easily who would accept essentially zero dollars. So yeah. then, you could maybe um, just like sign members uh, like members of the, your family. Right, like I'm going to so sign my this, mom. This, this actually happened last year, basically. So, like, so Toronto Blue Jays were one team that did this in the middle rounds. Really, we, what we saw in last year's draft was rounds four through six were a total farce. Uh, I don't remember exactly who the player was. Uh, I think it might have been the Giants who drafted him, but I can't remember exactly. So, don't hold me to that, anyone. Uh, but someone drafted a player in like round five who had hit like 215 at a junior college that had like recreational ball. I mean, this was like so far off the radar of even what a prospect could possibly be. Mm-hmm. And they signed for, like, like, you know, $1,000 or $5,000 or something. Like, you know, they just totally made a farce out of it. This year, I think my guess is Major League Baseball asked them not to, you know, make a total mockery. We saw picks that were definitely for signability reasons, but at least people had heard of them. Like, they played, you know, NCAA baseball this year, at least. So uh, the picks weren't as astoundingly hilarious as, what we saw last year when people were just taking players who had absolutely no chance of making it. Yeah, like we're friends of the organization or whatever. Yeah, I mean, they were basically like, hey, we, we know this guy has, like, decent character. We went and we saw him play against the prospect that, you know, we were actually watching. He seemed like a good guy. He hugged the puppy. Uh, you know, he'll be a good, humane story for the six months he's in our organization. Let's <laughs> use a fifth-round pick on him. <laughs> yeah, and he can always tell his kids right. that he a fifth-round pick. All right, uh... Well, so listen, uh, in one in less than one minute, uh, thoughts on the draft besides the Mark Capella's situation? Uh, I think it was pretty interesting that the Cubs went with a hitter over a pitcher. Jonathan Gray was ranked by Baseball America as the number one prospect in the draft, even ahead of Appel. Uh, he fell to number three because the Cubs went with Chris Bryant, who's a uh, college third baseman, maybe outfielder, who hit 31 home runs. Uh, and, you know, if that doesn't sound that spectacular to you, I think the next three guys in the NCAA uh, Pining and the home run totals combined for like 27. So uh, Chris Bryant hit a lot of home runs in a league where no one hit home runs anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good number of home runs to hit. 31. Okay. Good for him. The uh, yeah, I guess Al Scarupa. I'm going to talk to uh, Al uh, this week uh, also on the podcast, and we'll get uh, maybe more in depth coverage of that. Good. He uh, knows more than I do. Yeah, he probably does. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll ask him about that. But but you've uh, fulfilled your obligation. Um, any comments on your performance today? Uh, I didn't. I didn't have a Yasiel Puig like performance, but I think I was above replacement level. I was better than Andre Ethier. Okay, there you go. Better than Andre Ethier. That's uh, that's what we'll say. Well, thank you, uh, thank you, Dave Cameron, for making your weekly appearance. Thank you for making sure the levels are correct. Yeah. Uh, well, who who knows if they are? That's Dave Cameron, yeah. though, managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.